0: Welcome to Jepper Bytes. I'm your host, Laksh Tata. We're live from day three of CJLF
1: twenty nineteen, and the session you're about to listen to is called Call Me by Your Name. I have no idea what the next paragraph is going to be.
0: Could you take us through the writing process? You know, I, I also work as a curator and I'm very interested in uh, how artists and writers make their craft. Could you tell us a little
1: about the process? The process involves of course waking up in the morning and if you have a free morning, you, which I do have. I'm lucky enough to have a lot of free mornings. And if my children are grown up, then that means that I have the morning to myself and I don't have to take them to school. And I go from one thing, I go to my desk, I make coffee first and I sit with coffee and if something comes, it comes. If it doesn't come, it doesn't come. And I don't force it because I'm fundamentally very lazy. Uh, I have absolutely no discipline. If I can be distracted by emails, I love it. Uh, Texts even more. Uh, and I, I have to answer this email. It's very important. Of course, it's not important at all. It's just that I don't want to do any work. But basically, once I start writing, I write one sentence. It has to be perfect. Then the second sentence has to be also good for me and third. And then I go back to the first again. and say it's awful. Uh, and then I go to the second and the third and go on. And I do this sentence after sentence after sentence. At the very end of the day, I'm exhausted. And, uh, but then the next day, I go back to sentence number one. And I said, you know, I was right the first time. And I shouldn't have erased it. And it's a good thing because when you write with a computer, you can save all the cuts that you do because there's all kinds of apparatuses that you can use. In point of fact, it's that I'm such an insecure writer. Some people write from security and confidence. I envy them. Because I'm totally self-doubting, self-hating, self-anything you want. And I have no discipline. And everything I want to say, I gainsay the next day. Uh, if not the same. Let me give you a better example. As I start writing a sentence, and usually my sentences, for those of you who know, are very long. As I'm writing the sentence, I'm already correcting the beginning of the sentence. So it is... It's in a way you can call it torture, but if you are like me and you want to avoid facing reality outside the window and you want to really bury yourself in something else, it's the best therapy in the world.
0: You know, your fellow New Yorker and somebody who I believe would write with the kind of confidence that you lead us to believe you don't have, and which I don't believe. Uh, Tony Morrison said that painting had a greater influence on her novel than the writing of other writers. Uh, did the art and the ethereal light of Italy loom over uh, the novel? You know, I, I find that it has a very beautiful Caravaggio light.
1: The, did you say light? Yeah, light. Yeah, I do like light. Uh, uh, it's funny because the Italian sunshine in the early afternoon I'm talking about 2.30 or 3 o'clock, is for me the most sensual thing in the world, you know, apart from everything else. So why am I saying the most? I have no idea. I'm correcting myself, as you can see. <laughs> uh, but it is the light in the early afternoon for me is sublime because it's between dessert, after coffee, and siesta time. When the world basically says, okay, time out, we're going to stop everything, And if there's any noise in the background, it could be a cricket, it could be anything you want, or it could be a carpenter working steadfastly at his trade, but very, in a suffused note, the noise never disturbs you, it's part of your nap, and everything is sublime. That's the best part. So if I can capture that flavor of rest, peace, safety, pleasure, I'm at home.
0: Professor, you're a Proust scholar and a lover of his work. Um, In my own reading of Proust, I find that he lives either in anticipation or in nostalgia, but he doesn't really privilege the present moment. Was that an idea that
1: you had explored or wanted to bring to your own writing? Um, It is part of who I am. Uh, I don't know how to live in the present. Um, I don't believe people who say, I'm in the, the here and now. I usually don't like people who are in the here and now. uh, Because I don't understand what it means to be in the here and now. I understand being in the slightly past or in the slightly future. I particularly like when I can remember myself in the past, anticipating the future, looking back. Uh, This is my time zone, Okay, It's a bit ridiculous. I totally understand that's why you're laughing. It's fine. But the, the, the real home for me is the one that shuns the world of facts, the world of experience, and is basically finding itself at home in some kind of time zone that does not exist. And I think that for Proust, that was also the fact. Um, for those of you who don't know about Proust, Proust, uh, when he was a child, he was going to be taken to Venice. Uh, it was the family trip to Venice. And he was so thrilled and excited by the trip to Venice that he developed asthma. And as a result of that asthma, he, had, he could not go to Venice, and he went to an aunt's house in Combray or Illier, whatever you want to call it. And, and that became the home of his thought. So whenever he's homesick, he's not homesick for the Venice that never was, but he's homesick for the Combray that he never wanted to be in in the first place.
0: Summer Romance um, is a wonderful idea for, uh, for a book. It's powerful and memorable, essentially because it's doomed. You know, you know quite early on that this is not going to end very well. What do you believe readers could learn from the vulnerability and intimacy that existed between Elio and Oliver?
1: I don't know if they can learn anything. They, they're not supposed to learn anything, because usually I don't like to write with a message I, I, as you probably have understood by now, I believe in nothing. Uh, I have no particular loyalty to any idea, any ideology. I don't care. Uh, I'm hardly interested in other people, so it, it doesn't make me a very. I'm good going person. to
0: leave immediately. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but that's, it's, it's a point, it's, it's something that happens. So um, I don't want to teach anybody anything because I, I have nothing to teach anyone. Uh, But there is something that happens between Elio and Oliver, which I think is, is absolutely wonderful and magical. And it's the feeling that, and that's the title of the book, is whoever you are, the other person is. Which means basically that whoever you want to be, the other person already knows about. And whatever happened in your past that you're deadly embarrassed of, the other person needs to know. So that there, is, there are absolutely no doors shut between the two of you. And if that can exist and last, you're the luckiest person. Uh, usually, uh, I believe that um, in intimacy is something that we all understand, but you have to also understand the flavor of intimacy. For example, um, if you do not confess to someone something that you're very ashamed of, At the beginning of the relationship, the more intimate you become, the less you are likely to tell them about that thing. In other words, the more intimate you become, the more closed you become, which is a paradox, but I think this is what happens. So imagine for one second, as in the book, and that's why you have the peach incident, but you also have the bathroom incident, which we don't discuss, please. Uh, But it means that there is nothing about. Who I am that I have to be ashamed of. And if you learn that, it's good. It's a good thing to know.
0: You know, a few years ago, Daniel Mendelssohn, when he was reviewing uh, Brookback Mountain or writing about Brookback Mountain in the New York Review of Books, he made a very profound distinction, I think, that the American rhetoric of people clamoring to praise the film was about how it was a modern Romeo and Juliet. And he said this phrase is uh, incorrect and it's incorrect because Romeo and Juliet was a social tragedy, one that was forbidden by families. But what makes Brookback Mountain such a profound one was that it was a psychological tragedy because the characters internally don't allow each other for the love to flower and to blossom. Is that an idea that has resonance with you and your
1: book? <laughs> no. Um, and I will tell you why. Uh, if I didn't tell you why, you would think I'm a horrible human being. <laughs> um, no, the, the reason I would why, never do that. <laughs> you might think it, and that would be devastating. Um, they already think it. Look at them. Um, uh, uh, no, I think that what is important, uh, and what I wanted to do in Call Me By Your Name, is I wanted to avoid the typical tropes of all gay love stories, which are the same trope that you have in every 19th century opera. Even early 20th century opera, it's the same thing. Every love is doomed. Either it is forbidden because there's different class structure, or it is forbidden because uh, there's something morally wrong. And basically the woman usually dies of tuberculosis. She coughs herself as she sings the farewell aria. Or you have it in gay stories, it is always somebody getting killed, someone getting reprimanded, somebody, those always terrible things happen. And I said, I don't want to write this kind of story. I, don't want, I didn't even want to write about somebody dying of AIDS. I figured, yes, this all exists. I know it exists in the world, in the whole world it exists. But I didn't want to go there, which is why I have two individuals who are simply in love with each other and don't necessarily die. And are not necessarily ashamed of what they want. There is no coming out moment. Elio from the very first page in my novel knows exactly what he wants from Oliver. He wants to sleep with him. That's it. He knows exactly what he wants. And he's going to try to get that if he can. There is, if there is any shame, and shame is a very important uh, emotion that we feel, it is the shame of wanting someone else. I've always believed that the, it, it doesn't have to be shame of wanting somebody of the same sex. That's not the shame I'm talking about. Shame when you are desiring someone else whom you haven't spoken to, whom, who doesn't know you, who certainly doesn't know what you want from them, him, her. The shame of wanting someone else is devastating. It arrests you and you may never be able to get over it. And I'm sure that every single human being has had a love that we kept in our hearts and never allowed to blossom.
0: So, would you now... (laughs) Would you now talk to us about how the book came to be made to...
1: Into a movie. Became a picture now. (laughs) Um, the, 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 The book got published in 2007. In 2008, I got a phone call from a producer who got my my telephone number from my agent and, and said very simply that he had loved the book and he wanted to produce the film. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. It's fine. Uh, what is Was I going to say no? Don't make a movie out of my novel? But I had never thought of it as a novel, which is why... I, it was not written as a novel because the, the book itself, for those of you who know, is entirely in Elio's head. It's his imagination, his mistaken assumption, his insecurities, diffidence, everything else is in his head. Uh, I thought this is going to be impossible to make into a film. And over the years, we had many directors, many actors got interested. They all had different functions to Tend to, and they couldn't do the film. And it took about, I think, another five to six years for someone to finally materialize and say, we finally found the right script, we want to make it. And one was James Ivory, and the other one was Luca Guadagnino, and they were going to work together. Now, for those of you who know James Ivory, because you all live here and you know that he loves India, uh, he, for me to know that James Ivory was going to be involved was already okay, this is this is good news. And and Luca Guadagnino's film was... I had seen one of his films before, and I had adored it, because it was visually splendiferous. There was absolutely no other way to describe it. And it was very much done in the style of Lucchino Visconti. I don't know how many of you know him. Um, so I, I was at home. I felt very... And so we met at a coffee shop, and I... Um, they told me that they wanted to make the movie, how much they loved the novel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, fine. I know. Um, then they, they said that we're going to, and I love telling this moment, because they said, you know, there's a whole chapter in the novel that takes place in Rome. And they said they were going to uh, reduce the size of the Roman incident. I said, yes, I understand the reason for that. Then they said, we might reduce it significantly. I said, yeah, sure. I understand that as well. Actually, we're not going to do it in Rome. I said, fine, do what you want to do. I don't care. I never basically interfered in the movie making. I did nothing. I showed up on the set because I wanted to see what a movie looks like. I'd never been on a film set. Uh, And uh, they said, we need your measurements. And I said, why do you need my measurements? They said, because we're going to dress you up in a suit so that you can look... They didn't say that, but so that you can look totally ridiculous in the film, so I said I didn't know that I was going to be, an. I was never an actor, and so I had a lot of fun doing it. Eventually, um, the film was made, it was made very fast, in six weeks, and they worked six days a week, not five, which is usually the way it's done, and uh, then they said it was in San Sundance, and I went to Sundance, I didn't go to Sundance, because it was very cold and it's too far away and I didn't want to get involved. I figured the movie was going to basically be a bit of a flop. Uh, It was going to come out in DVD in a few weeks and then I would see it. Uh, But then I heard that it was done, done very well. So the next time it was showing was in Berlin and I went to Berlin to see it and I adored it. I adored it. I think it captures everything. And the last thing I can say about the film is that What it did do without a voiceover was to capture all the emotions that Elio feels in his face. And I thought that was a brilliant move and a brilliant part of the actor. The actor himself was absolutely brilliant because he was able to convey all the doubts, all the insecurities, and the questioning that one has when one feels desire for someone else. It was all there on his face. So I thought it was beautiful.
0: You know, uh, the Indian writer Arundhati Roy declined to sell the rights of the god of small things um, because she believed that the reader had an individual relationship with the text and the characters and didn't want one person shaping them, imagining them, and putting them on screen in a way that film can be quite prescriptive. And I read that you imagined Elio and uh, his appearance in a certain way when you were writing the book and also with um, Oliver. And now you only picture Arnie and Timothy were you concerned that a film becomes prescriptive and that imagines a character and then you have to let one person do the decoding? It's fine.
1: It, it really is fine. Uh, one shouldn't be that precious. I mean, can you imagine Shakespeare complaining that people are putting Romeo and Juliet on film? He wouldn't complain. He would say, fine, do it your way, however you want it. Uh, one seldom should take oneself this seriously. Um, Because that makes you doubt on the seriousness of the whole endeavor. I didn't say this. It gets erased from whatever record exists, but it's fine. Um, No, I think that um, one should never um, be afraid of what a film does to a book. The book has a reality. the, The film has another one. They are not competing. They're totally sort of complementary to each other, and that's fine. And the fact is, of course, that I can no longer remember what Oliver looked like and how I imagined him in my mind because he has been displaced by Army Hammer. And if you are the kind of person who listens to books, the voice that you associate with the prose is Army Hammer's voice because he reads the whole book on tape. And that's fine. That's fine. Uh, there's no interference, I believe from one medium to another medium. And I have no problem with that.
0: And because the, be- the film was such a powerful and beautiful um, adaptation and homage to the book, did you encounter nuances of the, the character's relationship that you hadn't known or discovered in the writing of?
1: Well, there are some things that happened in film because of the inflection of the voice and the way it is said that begins to mean something else than what I had originally intended. But what happens is that people will ask me questions about the film in view of the book in which i say, you know what? Your reaction is correct. And the one scene I can think of most famously is the scene in which the father is speaking to his son at the very end of the movie. When I wrote the scene, the father said, you know, I envy you what you feel. I came close, but I never had this. What I meant to say was I came close to having this kind of love for someone and I never found it, not even in your mother. And what it doesn't say not even in your mother, but that's what I intended. And when Elio asks his father in the book, does mom know, what he means to say is, does mom know that I and Oliver had a relationship? And the father says, no, she doesn't. What people have reacted to is say, no, that's totally wrong. And I think they're right, Uh, except I didn't know it. Uh, What they are meaning is, is that, does mom know that you came close to having a gay relationship and never did? And he says, no, she doesn't, which is an interpretation that had never crossed my mind. But now, in retrospect, if I were teaching the novel, I would say that's the interpretation that is correct. So you learn things from the public.
0: You know, Unlike the movie which ends with the two men uh, young, your novel gives us a glimpse of, of their future. Why was it important to portray an encounter between the two lovers 20 years after the affair? What was the coda that you were trying to reach for?
1: Um, well, can I if answer I was a this code. by spe- stepping back? Please. Please. Okay. Uh, some of you may know this because I've said it before, but if you don't know it, as I was writing, I had no idea where I was going to go. So I was going to have them become very close. Um, there was not going to be even a kiss. No, no sex, absolutely. And, uh, and Oliver was going to die. He was going to drown in the water going fishing with ankise, And it's a tragedy. This is why you have the episode of the burning of the body of Percy Shilley. Shelley in the middle of the novel because it was a kind of foreshadowing of what was going to happen to Oliver, whose body was going to drift into the sand and oh my god, he's dead, it's terrible. Okay? Um, But then I decided, no, let's go on. So I'm always changing my mind midway and I do uh, many, many alterations as I go along. And one of the things that I got at the end of the trip when they say goodbye to each other, I figured can't leave it hanging like this. Something has to happen. Well, Oliver gets married. End. And I said, no, that's still not good. That's not a good enough ending. So Oliver goes and visits the family. Now he visits the family with his children. That's nice. That's not the end. Um, Elio goes and visits Oliver in his college. And they have a nice moment together as they're having martinis together. And I I said, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, we can end here. It didn't make me happy. So I had a last meeting 20 years later when Oliver returns to the house and they have their last meeting together. And of course, as you can sense where I'm going with this is that we want to know what happens after this. Well, I didn't want to enter into the domesticity of their relationship Because domestic life is not necessarily romantic in the sense of a courtship novel. And so I stopped there. But now I'm doing some work in retrospect to understand what happened in those 20 years. What did you learn from the process of having the book
0: adapted to screen that you can now bring back to the form of the novel?
1: I don't think... I don't know. I I, I don't think it works that way, because I think in terms of sentences and the music of the sentence and the cadence of the sentence, even though I wrote this novel very, very fast, um, mostly four months, it's a bit less than four months, so it was very fast, but I want to make sure that every sentence has music, so I'm not interested in the facts, in the faces. I'm not interested in what is visually sexy. Um, I'm more interested in, does the sentence work? Does it make the desires I have in my heart come out like music? Which is what I want to do. So basically, whatever is in my, my gut, heart, mind, whatever you want to call it, that it has to come out, it has to come out musically. Once the music is there, that's all I care. Whether it's visual or not is incidental for me.
0: I want to go back to the fact that you said you played a small character in, in the film. I don't know if you know this story about Michael Cunningham also doing the same thing uh, in The Hours and then they cut his scene. <laughs> he was very vastly disappointed by the fact that he wrote the film and at the director's invitation acted in it and then when they were actually putting it out there. I mean, So by default of that uh, example and that story you should be over the moon, no matter how badly
1: fitted your suit was? Oh, it was a terrible suit. It was too tight. It made me look pudgy. But then I wanted that. I mean, I guess that's what I wanted. And my partner, who basically in, that, in the film is the producer of the film. So we're having a great time. We're laughing at everything we're saying. And uh, we're, we're, it's a wonderful thing. But I had no intention of acting. And I will never act again. It's not what I do. But it was very relaxing because I said, I don't want to learn any lines because I don't have a memory for lines. I'll fudge it. And he says, don't worry about it. Say whatever comes in your mind in whatever language you want. Fine. And I did that. And we had a great time doing it. It was wonderful.
0: And in the book, the act of calling someone you feel passionately about by their name unites them in a way that perhaps their bodies cannot be united and will not be united, as it is in the book. Is that something that... And that's where you derive
1: the title also. The title derives because... um, I'll give you the origin of the idea. Please, that's exactly what I had in mind. Okay. I had two friends. Um, They were lovers. They were partners. They were two women. And they had the same name. So I turned to my wife in one of my most mischievous moments... And I said, you know, when they're making love, do they call each other by their names? And if they call each other by each other's names, are they doing it intentionally so that you are me, I am you? Or are they just calling the other person, but that's what your name is? So I loved the idea, and I made fun of it initially. I wasn't making fun of it. I was just having a good time with it. And when I wrote the novel, I said, this is the moment to do it. Because in my novel, it begins to acquire a fantastic moment when you are so into the other person that the other person is more yourself than you are. What a wonderful feeling that is. However ugly I am and nasty and whatever, all my defects, you have them too, and you're giving them back to me as something plus, which is wonderful. In other words, you've cleansed me of myself, and you're giving me myself back to me. And I'm calling you by my name because... Essentially, we're all so self-centered that the world would make no sense if it was different from us. So the way in which, you know, like mother um, animals always like to hover over their children or their pups because they want to give them the mother's smell. And that's how the mother recognizes her offspring, by the smell that she knows is hers. And that's what I wanted. You become me and I become you. And that's the most wonderful thing. That's what I wanted to, 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 to get. Thank you.
0: So no, earlier you said that you weren't really trying to teach anyone anything through the book, which I love. I love that it's not didactic. But, um, and at the same time, what is very beautiful by influence of experience is the letter. Is that something that was always in your head, um, with the letter that Elio's father writes? Is that...
1: Eliel's father writes, uh, the speech he gives. Yes. Yes. Sorry, the speech. The speech. uh, No, the speech came very easily to me. There are two scenes that are in the movie, almost word for word, that are in the movie from the book. One is the speech of the father, which is transcribed almost verbatim. And and the reason why it it came easily to me is because this is exactly who my father is and was. Uh, a person who was so open-minded about particularly sexuality, not politics, sexuality, that uh, he, he used to say to me, you know, once you're in bed with someone, anything you do is fine. You should have no shame of whatever it is that is in your head. And, um, and he was right. And so this is the kind of attitude I wanted the father to have. And I wanted the father to say, I know what was going on. And I wanted that to be a surprise to Elio and to the reader. And I wanted that to be a surprise to the viewer of the film as well. When the father says, you know, you had more than one friendship. Let's not talk nonsense here. And I think that's wonderful that the son does not even deny it or attempts to deny it, but then doesn't. And I, I wanted that relationship between the father and the son to exist because in my life it was, a very, it was a very troubled relationship but it was a very close relationship with my father where we would exchange facts about our personal lives quite openly which I think is wonderful and if you think about it for people who are trying to come out to their parents what better model I mean in retrospect I thought this is a great model If a parent who has a daughter or a son who is trying to tell him something blocks that speech, he's being awful. So that father should let that child speak or should make it possible for the child to speak. Um, Otherwise, what kind of parent are you? What are you doing? I've been signaled that... um... Thank Thank you. I feel like a
0: preacher. I'm not. Uh, I've been signaled to take um, to give you one last question, and then open it up uh, to to your readers. Is it true that you're considering a sequel to the book? Uh, and would you consider sharing what you're working on next with your readers at Jaipur?
1: Well, I think my agent is out there somewhere, and she's saying, "Be careful of <laughs> what you say." Be careful of what you say. No, what I wanted to do was to take um, three moments in the lives of the father of the of Elio and of Oliver. As they are working their way... Of course, the father in the novel, for those of you who don't know, is not there 20 years later. Um, But what I wanted to do was to capture what their lives was like in those 20 years. So it's not so much a sequel as it is a prequel to the end when they do um, connect again 20 years later. And I hope it's a good connection, uh, one that everybody... And I'd want to see happen.
0: So we're going to open up uh, the floor to questions, and I've been given a brief uh, by a Professor that we would like very much for questions to be short and direct. Uh, can we? Do we have mics? And there's a gentleman there who has a question. This person wants to. Be right, but I mean. Gentlemen, with the hand. Hearing this. A lot of screaming at the back.
1: My question was, did Proust have any influence on you when you were writing this book? Oh, yes. Did Proust have an influence on me as I'm writing the book? Um, well, for those of you who want to know, um, when you read all of Proust you have to read the whole thing. Uh, it changes you entirely. It changes your ability to understand how people function. And it changes who you are and how you address yourself. And so Proust has always... Re- I read Proust when I was very, very young. And then I read him again when I was 19 years old. And I I find that his presence is overwhelming. And... Um, ineluctable. You can't fight against it. So, And you don't want to fight about it because it enriches your, your vision. And as Proust said, your vision and your style are coterminous. In other words, they, they feed into each other. And I think that, yes, it is. Uh, my sentences have the kind of rhythm that you would find in a Proustian sentence. My irony, which is endemic and persistent, is always there, and Proust was very ironic. In other words, I never take myself seriously as a narrator, as a person, as a human being. Every opinion I have is changeable and will change. Every opinion I have about an artist is is subject to alteration. Every opinion, bad opinion particularly, I have of people always sort of is changed over time and changes again and again and again. So if I hate you today, tomorrow I will love you, but after tomorrow I will hate you again, and I may stay hating you for many years, and then I may love you again. That sort of thing.
0: That's Proustian. Is there a lady in the front, ma'am? Please. Uh, thank you for that lovely conversation. Um, I can't believe I'm actually asking your question, because I love your book, and I love the movie so much. I consider it one of the greatest and most tender love stories I've nice. ever read. So uh, my question to you is what is one of your uh, what, what is a great what is your greatest love story what's a book you've read or a story you've read it's your version of a greatest love story and you spoke very interestingly about intimacy and that intimacy precludes uh, being open with each other how do intimacy and love fit together
1: in your opinion oh well i, I, I don't it would take forever to answer the question but all i can say is that Art is, in fact, our attempt to enter into intimacy, if not with ourselves, which is the case, at least with the readers and with the public, with the real world out there, hoping that the real world will give us the authority to trust ourselves. Uh, In other words, intimacy is not something that you have. It is a transaction that you have, with the world and that you get back from the world so that you can start believing. I never believe myself until I hear people believing in me. And then I say, maybe they're stupid or maybe they're brilliant. Uh, And I'll change my mind every single day. That's how I operate. But I think that art is, in fact, a vehicle to get into what is most private about ourselves. If we're not private about ourselves, why are we bothering with art? That's my definition of it. Other people tell you, no, art is giving us a good plot to get us away from ourselves. I'm the opposite.
0: Question, ma'am. I just wanted to ask, like, uh, you just said that when you write, uh, there's a certain musicality to your sentences, whether it's musical or not. And then you said, like, the time, like, the late afternoon that you see in Italy... The, one of the most sensual things, or, you know, you really love it. So, like, uh, is it a part of you, uh, like, as you've grown, like, you know, or, like, have you acquired that from something, some experiences in your life, or is just the sensual side of yours
1: that comes into the book and your sentences? Uh, I hope.
0: That's a little open-ended, but...
1: Um, um, maybe we can rephrase the question. Yeah. Oh, or you
0: can answer it in a way that allows you to say something that I ha- we haven't been able to get okay. out of you.
1: Well, um, I'm not trying to have my teeth taken out. Uh, 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 my dentist would love to. Not this. yet. <laughs> no, I, 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 I don't know how to answer your question because it's so, it's, no, it's so gnarled together. So the only thing I can say is that um, the music, that I look for, it can change by the way, the music I have in mind in the morning and the music I have in the evening are totally different, but it has to be, and once it's, it's finalized it's almost like a cement it, it's, it has hardened and it has become what it needs to be and usually my doubts at some point flag I get too tired of doubting myself and this is what it's going to be because that's the best I can do uh, but music is extremely important Question in the back. Hello, sir. Where are you? Uh, oh, there you are. Okay. Uh, there are a lot of things and there are a lot of pauses and silences. What I want to ask is how are you so sure that the reader would understand what you wanted to convey with those silences? Oh, that's... um The one thing that many authors do is to insult the reader by assuming that the reader is so stupid that the reader needs to be told what is happening. If you're doing your job correctly and rightly, the reader gets it. Uh, One editor once told me many years ago, Andre, we get it. We understand. You don't have to go overboard explaining what's obvious. But there is a scene, which for me was the hardest scene to write. It's the scene in which Elio and Oliver are biking together and they're in front of the monument. And that's the moment when Oliver and Elio will have a conversation that is extremely oblique. uh, At which point, you know, Elio will say, uh, Oliver says, God, is there anything you don't know? And Elio replies, God, you have no idea of things that I know nothing about, nothing at all. There are, and so Oliver will say, what things are you talking about? Things, you should know what things these are. Now, I wanted the conversation to be as to ambiguous as possible and oblique as possible so that the reader would say, am I getting this right or not? But that's exactly how Oliver is feeling at that moment. Am I understanding what you're saying or am I getting it totally wrong? And those are the moments that take a lot, it took a lot out of me. Uh, I spent a few hours writing that scene uh, because although it came very fast, I had to chisel it so that it stays clear if you get it and totally ambiguous and ununderstandable if you don't get it until it becomes totally sort of clear that what what Elio is telling Oliver is that he has a crush on him. And that's as far as it goes.
0: Question at the back, sir.
1: Hello, Hello, gentlemen. Uh, My
0: question is that, uh, as you said, that you are always in a state of constant self-doubt, that uh, whatever you have written, even a single sentence, you are doubting yourself. How do you end up, or how do you make a conclusion that whatever I have written, yes, it is up to the mark, I have written
1: something good? You never know that. Uh, That is the problem with me. In other words, if I look at a book that is published and has been reviewed for 10 years, and I look at it again and I never read myself, I already want to make changes. How stupid. You've used the same word three paragraphs in a row. You can't do that. Why did you let that happen, you idiot? It's like the voice of a parent yelling at me for doing things. So I'm never satisfied. But there comes a moment when you feel... I'm going to... I think this is it. Um, And usually you know this is it when the last editor of the manuscript tells you, we have no more questions. At that point you say, okay, they are okay with it. So-and-so is okay with it. I'm okay with it. I think we can go now. Uh, But if somebody comes and calls me at the last minute saying, Andre, we found something terribly wrong in your manuscript... We have to fix it. This is terrible. I would say, you're right. You're totally right. So usually when I work with an editor, I expect them to be 95% right when they suggest I cut something. Uh, because I'm always insecure. But there are times where I have insisted, no, this has to stay. And they say, okay, okay, fine. fine, Have it your way. Again, question in the back. Thank you. Oh. Hello. Thank you for your wonderful talk. Um, when you spoke about the shame of um, desiring another, no matter who they are, uh, what do you think is the source of that shame? And is that desiring another as opposed to being content with just yourself? Or sort of is it that we aren't recognizing our own completeness so there's a shame in that? Or where do you think that shame stems from? Uh, how much do you charge an hour? <laughs> Um, No, I think that um, in every instance of desire, it's that we want something from someone else. And when we want something from someone else, uh, we think we are not worthy of obtaining it, which is why we hesitate. When you have to call someone on, I don't know, on a night in order to make an appointment, or to make a date, or, or you'd send a text nowadays, I'm sorry, okay, Uh, you, you want to go out with someone and you want to sort of reach out to them, there's always a moment in which you hope that their telephone does not ring, that the answering machine does not work, that the text you have is the wrong one, their number is not correct, so that you don't have to confront them. And this tells me that there's something wrong, not only in myself, but in every human being who wants something from someone else. And that we're not sure that they want the same thing from us. And that moment of self-doubt is usually overcome right away. Or it can last a week, a month, 10 years, 40, 50 years. Sometimes it never goes away. And I understand that. And I find that particular form of awkwardness, shame... Um, so this kind of unwieldy sense of not being able to understand what you want exactly to be really the history of our identity. The only
0: thing I would say to that is I'm so glad that the inventors of Tinder were not thinking about that, Professor.
1: No, it's true, but I've, I, I don't use that thought. <laughs> you wrote I, a
0: book, The Inventor Nap. I so would I be
1: curious to know, do you present yourself on Tinder with a picture?
0: I would hope so. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, there'd be like a stalker or somebody you okay. want to call the cops yeah, you, on. You
1: put your best picture that you've got, you say the most interesting things about yourself, and you go with it. Uh, I would never have been able to do that because I said, nobody's going to want to do this. Uh, who am I that they want? Nah, 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 nah. I'm going to go home. <laughs> Question on the back Hello. Uh, your writing
0: about intimacy is. Uh, I would like to ask you, how hard is it to not make it it into something obscene when writing about sex and love?
1: It's it's very difficult because I remember when I was a teenager, there was a magazine, I don't know if it exists still, called Penthouse. Uh, How many of you have ever seen Penthouse? You're all so young, it's terrible. Uh, But Penthouse had images of naked women. And the reason why I preferred Penthouse to Playboy is that Penthouse had a kind of fuzzy feeling to it. The picture was not accurate enough for what I wanted from those pictures when I was very young. Uh, Playboy was very obvious about what they had. And so when you write about sex, you want to keep it slightly vague, but you don't want to be too cute or... Canny about the whole thing. You want to allow the reader to understand exactly what is happening. You don't want to use nicknames for the parts of the body that sort of the other writers have done. Um, you want to be as, of, and you want also to catch the reader unawares that suddenly you're talking about semen or you're talking about pain, or whatever it is. You want to give the right facts, but you're not giving them in their right order. So you are allowing a touch of of ambiguity to inhabit something that's at the same time very graphic. The one thing you don't want to do is to be ashamed of talking about sex, or about body functions, anybody. I have vomit scenes in my book. Uh, no, there's only one vomit scene. And I love that scene because at some point Elio vomits and Oliver says, do you ever chew your peas when you eat? Uh, because obviously he's vomiting whole peas. Uh, and I love that. that sort of thing. In other words, you can be as accurate, but you have to be not in the right sequence so that people can say, yes, I know where he's going with this. I can tell where he's going.
0: I understand there's a question from the back, but there's been somebody waiting here in the front. Would you be so kind as to bring the mic up here?
1: How do you see the hands? I never see hands. Yeah. Oh, there she is. Oh.
0: Hello. Uh, thank you. Hi. So I wanted to ask that uh, you said Elio knew from the first page in your book that he wanted to sleep with Oliver. And then you also talk about the shame that Elio felt in desiring someone else. How do you think as a creator of this character he reconciled these two opposing emotions?
1: Um, well, you can want I mean, you know, let us say somebody's sitting next to you and they have the most beautiful shoulders. okay, The most shining shoulders, the most beautiful. You want to kiss the shoulder. okay? You know exactly what you want from that shoulder. okay? You know. You know, you know right away. I, I want to touch that shoulder. I have to touch that shoulder. I'll find an excuse. I get anyway. that all the time, Professor. <laughs> the shoulder. Well, there's a famous movie where this man is obsessed by this woman's knee. He wants to touch the knee. So the only way he can get to touch the knee is to make her cry about her boyfriend so that he can console her and rub her knee. Okay, It's a wonderful film, by the way. Uh, so what I wanted? Um, yes, you can know that you want to touch the knee, the, the, knee, the, the shoulder, but at the same time you feel that you're totally inhibited. How am I going to do this? What am I going to do? And this is mortifying. I want to touch your shoulder. I should get to know who you are first. I need to know whether you want me to touch you. Do you want to touch my shoulder? Okay, that sort of thing. And you, you, you hesitate, you hesitate. And the whole first two chapters are about Elio fighting and struggling with himself to understand who is Oliver and will Oliver be shocked As you know, you can anybody can be shocked when you tell them. You know, I have a crush on you. You do? Oh, you know, you always expect something like that. So the two feelings are totally sort of um, coincidental. At the back, Uh, would it be at all possible to read out what the father says in the end to the son? Uh, it would be possible, yes, if I had a copy of the book. And if I had glasses.
0: (laughs) Another question in the meantime when we organize that. So go ahead. Hi. um,
1: Thank you for this wonderful talk. I had a question regarding the book. Thank you, you. When you wrote the book, I felt that there was an ease in which you placed all the characters and then there was a sense of unease between Elio and Oliver. And that was played out beautifully in the film as well.
0: So is that something that you were sure you wanted to transcend into the movie when it was
1: being adapted? Or was it something that you trusted the filmmakers would do? Uh, You know what, I trusted them to do but I never thought about it because I I thought it would come automatically with the book. Uh, the one thing, you, you use the word ease, correct? Yeah. Well, the, word, the other word, that which has become a very ugly word, is the sense of <laughs> privileged ease that you have in that family. It's not a wealthy family, but they have a beautiful home. People who are tourists want to see the house. Uh, the house is always filled with good food. There is no sense of, any, there are no restrictions in that house. So it's, it's a... Sort of bourgeois or high bourgeois family, where the values are not necessarily the values that you have in the city itself or in the town. Um, this is an, it's a kind of paradise in itself, and I wanted to maintain that. And lo and behold, the film managed to convey it perfectly. You have a sense that the parents are happy together; they're happy with their son. There's a moment in which the mother reads a story in German and the father and the son and the mother are basically all sitting together on each other almost. And I wanted that f- sense of the family to be captured, and it was, and then transcended into the way in which Oliver and Elio are going to finally embrace each other. Yes. Yes. Um,
0: okay, fine. Uh, you, uh, in the book, you write about San Clemente syndrome, and I've read the book so many times, but I still
1: don't completely understand what it meant. So I would like to ask you what it meant. Well, yeah. San Clemente is a basilica in Rome. And uh, what it has, that's special. But many churches in Rome have the same thing. So I'm not giving you anything that most people don't know. Uh, there is the, the top of the, the, the church itself, which happened to have been burnt. So there was another church there, and they rebuilt it. But underneath it, So now you have two churches in the same spot. Underneath it, there's an ancient church, uh, which is underground. And you can see it because they have opened up the space for it, and you can actually go down. Then under the second church, there is a Mithraic temple where they used to sacrifice bulls there. So now you have a site that really has at least four different layers to it. And if you really want to pay attention to the book. Everything happens in fours in this book. And so the other instance, when, the, when he reads the poem, it's, he tells the story of having been in Thailand and how he was sitting next to this, this man who says, you know, I'm really not a man. Look at me. He takes down his hair. And it's, it's a Bertolucci scene, by the way. Uh, and he says, you see, I'm really a woman. And the man says, finally, okay, good. I thought for a moment, you know, I was attracted to the wrong gender. And then he says, no, 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 no. You know, I'm not really a woman. I'm really a man who looks like a woman. Oh, I see. Well, I'm still attracted, so that's fine. And then he sees her or him stand up and he sees that she's wearing perfect high heels and she looks like a woman. And so, essentially, it was a transposed description of who we are we are at least at least four different layers of identities, four different layers of religions, of nationalities, of desires. We are so many people inside of us. And each one is on top of the other, and they shift positions. So it's really like the San Clemente Basilica, which happens to be one thing on the top, then an older one that has been displaced completely, one underground, and one underground the other. Other underground one, and I think that that's a good metaphor for the universe of desire.
0: Professor, uh, thank you. So we had three minutes or two and a half minutes. May we invite? Yeah. Uh,
1: Page, I should be.
0: Or what passage in particular?
1: Yeah. Okay. You realize, of course, that as I'm reading this, I'm competing with the actor who gave a fantastic rendition of this. You had a beautiful friendship, maybe more than a friendship, and I envy you. In my place, most parents would hope the whole thing goes away or pray their son's lands on their feet soon enough. But I am not such a parent. In your place, if there is pain... Nurse it. And if there is a flame, don't snuff it out. Don't be brutal with it. Withdrawal can be a terrible thing when it keeps us awake at night and watching others forget us sooner than we'd want to be forgotten is no better. We rip out so much of ourselves to be cured of things faster than we should that we go bankrupt by the age of 30 and have less to offer each time we start with someone new. But to feel nothing so as not to feel anything? What a waste. It will... I'll continue. Then let me say one more thing. It will clear the air between us. I may have come close. This is the moment I was describing. I may have come close, but I never had what you had. Something always held me back or stood in the way. How you live your life is your business. But remember... Our hearts and our bodies are given to us only once. Most of us can't help but, have as, but live as though we've had two lives to live. One is the mock-up, the other the finished version, and then there are all those other versions in between. But there's only one. And before you know it, your heart is worn out. And as for your body, there comes a point when no one looks at it, much less wants to come near it. Right now, there's sorrow I don't envy you the pain, but I envy you the pain. Thank you all so very, very much.
0: Thank you for listening to Jepper Betts, a podcast produced by Lonchora in association with the Z Jepper Literature Festival.